Next, this month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. Throughout the month of February, ReachMD talks with experts about new medications, technologies, and treatment guidelines in cardiac care. Does the mind exist after there is no brain function? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. And today our special guest is Dr. Sam Parnia. Dr. Parnia is a fellow in pulmonary and critical care medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical Center, New York, New York. And he's also an honorary senior research fellow at the University of Southampton, the United Kingdom School of Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. To begin with, could you explain AWARE, which is an acronym for Awareness During Resuscitation? Yes, this is the study that has just been launched through the University of Southampton in the UK, and it's currently the world's largest ever study looking at what happens to the human mind and brain during clinical death and cardiac arrest. And the reason why it was set up was because there have been a number of small studies that have shown that consistently demonstrated that at least 10 to 20% of people who have gone through a cardiac arrest and been brought back to life will report some activity of their mind and consciousness. And interestingly, other studies have shown that if you look at the brain during cardiac arrest, because there is a lack of blood flow, even during advanced life support measures, that there is no measurable brain activity, yet somehow consciousness appears to be continuing. And therefore, we wanted to set this study up to see what people experience during those initial periods of death, what death is like, and also uh, whether consciousness does indeed continue. The primary thing that we will be testing is the relationship of the brain with the ability of people to hear and see things accurately. As you may know, some people claim to have been able to watch doctors and nurses working on them from a point above. Could you also tell me, what is the Human Consciousness Project? Is this the overseeing group? Yes, the Human Consciousness Project is a multidisciplinary collaboration of scientists, physicians, and academics with an interest in studying the mind and consciousness and its relationship with the brain. And it was formed at the University of Southampton again in the UK. And the AWARE study is one of the studies that has been developed through this group. Well, what is the method? How do you study this? There are two major components to this. One is studying objectively what happens to the brain during cardiac arrest in individual people, because although we know there have been studies in humans and animals, it has been shown that there is no measurable brain activity because there is a lack of blood flow. We want to determine whether in each individual person who does have memories and consciousness, what was happening in that specific case. So we will be using sophisticated brain monitoring technology called INVOS, which measures oxygenation within the brain. It's a non-invasive measure, and it gives us an indication of blood flow through the brain when someone is going through a cardiac arrest and they're being resuscitated. And then we will be correlating that as well as other physiological parameters like oxygen levels, carbon dioxide levels, drugs that patients were given during the period of cardiac arrest with what they recall that happened to them. Now, a lot of what people recall is very subjective. So they'll, for example, describe seeing a tunnel, seeing a light, feeling very peaceful, maybe describe even a sensation of seeing deceased relatives or going to a very beautiful place, the so-called near-death experience which although it's interesting, it cannot be validated scientifically. It's just a phenomenon that happens. There are some people, though, who claim to have had a sensation of separating from themselves, going to the ceiling, and supposedly they describe being able to see doctors and nurses working on them in accurate detail. And that's a component that we can test objectively 
by placing images that are only visible from certain areas in the room. So, for example, some of the images can only be seen if you're really looking down from the ceiling and from nowhere else. And the idea is simple. If we get three or 400 people who all claim to have been able to see doctors and nurses working on them, if none of them can see those pictures that were only visible from the ceiling, this would suggest that these claims of consciousness and the ability to see may just simply be an illusion or a false memory. If, on the other hand, they all accurately describe them, then it would suggest that consciousness can be non-localized to the brain, which, of course, is possible because the mind really is a mystery that we don't quite understand. So these are images that are moved into the cardiac care area during the cardiac arrest? In most cases, the areas are actually pre-installed with images. So before we start to study, we will place images at a particular height that makes it such that you cannot see them from the ground level up. So for example, let's say six foot five from the ground level. And they're positioned such that they're only visible if you're looking from the ceiling. And then essentially everything else runs as normal. You know, when there is a cardiac arrest and the person survives, we then interview them, get consent, and then find out what they experienced and did they see the pictures or not. So during a cardiac arrest, the patients are also being ventilated. You're measuring their cardiac output, you're measuring their CO2, whether it's rising, you're measuring their oxygen saturation. What other things are you measuring to make sure that these parameters are not influencing the perceptions? Well, with the things that we're specifically looking at, as I mentioned, and as you just pointed out, are carbon dioxide levels, oxygen levels, the drugs that people were given, we'll make a list of those. And the reason why we're looking at those is because people have suggested that these experiences may be related to oxygen levels, for example. And then obviously that will be correlated with an objective measure of cerebral oxygenation using this INVOS technology. And then the other things that we'll be looking to test in some cases where possible will be specific markers of brain injury. There are specific biochemical markers that can be tested, things like neuron-specific enolase that gets released if there's injury to the brain, and that will determine how much injury had taken place during the cardiac arrest. So what you're really saying is that consciousness and the mind can be separated from brain function? Well, at least brain function that we know. I mean, one of the things that we have to appreciate is that right now, scientifically speaking, we have no idea about the nature of the mind or consciousness. You know, we all know that we're thinking beings. We know that mind and consciousness exist but we don't know how it relates to brain activity. For example, is it really related to electrochemical activity of the brain? Well, we simply don't know. We know that there is definitely a correlation such that as electrical activity of the brain goes down and eventually ceases, there should be no activity of consciousness, at least nothing that we can measure. Yet paradoxically, and although that was certainly true, paradoxically, when we study the mind and consciousness during cardiac arrest, it appears that even if there is no measurable activity of the brain, Somehow people are able to be fully conscious and able to see, hear, form memories, have lucid, you know, well-structured thought processes, just like anyone else. And of course, if that is confirmed through the AWARE study, that will be a very big discovery. Do you think, after having said this to me, that this is going to change how we take care of people going through the dying process? I think this is one of those studies, or this type of work, I should say, will have huge implications for many aspects of our care. One of them is simply being able to, on a very sort of simplistic level, being able to tell people and explain to them what death is really like and what they'll experience, because a lot of people are very much afraid of this when they come to the end. Another component which will benefit our care is really trying to determine ways that we can improve 
resuscitation of the brain during cardiac arrest. Because so far, all the measures that we have during cardiac arrest essentially rely on looking at a, a beating heart or electrical activity of the heart and possibly a pulse that we can measure with our fingers, which doesn't tell us anything about what's happening to the brain. And so one of the important things is to try to improve our measures of what's really happening in real time to the brain. The other implication that this has is really trying to understand more about death because 100 years ago when somebody's heart stopped, that would be the end of it. There was nothing that you could do much about it. Today what we realize actually is that death is not a moment. There isn't a line that you can draw and say, well, after this point the person is dead and before that they were alive. We define death when there is no heartbeat, there's no pulse, and there's no measurable brain activity when we look for the pupillary responses that are absent. But of course, there are still cellular processes going on after that point has been reached. You know, At what point does the human mind and consciousness cease activity after we've died? Is it the first few seconds? Is it the first few minutes? Is it tens of minutes? And we simply don't know. And where this will become significant, of course, is you know in areas that are currently medical ethical issues, like, say, transplantation. At what point do we really define somebody as dead, dead enough to remove their organs? Is it immediate when their heart stops? Well, maybe not. Maybe we have to give it a period of time. Is it five minutes? Is it ten minutes? And this is one of the questions that actually is going on right now in medicine and we don't have answers for. Functional MRIs show that you ask a patient a particular question and a metabolic process takes place in a certain area in the brain that can be reproduced. But this is a metabolic process. Is there some relationship between that metabolic process and the subjective feeling of consciousness. Is this metabolic process really the same thing that goes on when people have perceptions? Well, you raise a very interesting point, and that is that does metabolic activity in the brain somehow define thoughts? Because if you think about it, I mean, we can study different levels of consciousness, different thought processes, different aspects of the mind and study it during, you know, using a functional MRI scan. And we can then determine when someone, for example, is feeling sad, which areas of the brain have changes in blood flow. Or if you're using a PET scan, you can look at changes in glucose uptake within those areas of the brain and therefore determine that there is more or less activity in specific components. But the big question really for science is how does that tell us what thoughts are? You know, and how can we determine how thoughts arise from brain activity? For example, why would a bit of electricity going across a synapse or oxygen uptake or glucose uptake lead to the generation of this amazing phenomenon of thought? And that's really the crux of the problem in science. That's the problem of consciousness. No one understands how thoughts arise. We know that they correlate with different activity in different parts of the brain, but we don't know if they're caused by that. And that I don't think we have an answer for yet, although studies that we're carrying out may be able to help to answer these questions in the near future. Earlier in an interview, you described perceptions and that there are many similarities, light, warmth, going down a tunnel. But let me ask you about the 10 to 15 percent of people who have these perceptions. Are they different than the other people who don't have them? At this point, there's no indication that they're particularly different. This is a phenomenon that's been described all over the world, different age groups. And certainly in the studies that have been carried out during cardiac arrest, which are much more controlled, there seems to be no major difference. For example, people are given the same medication because they're all resuscitated to the same protocol. There may be some evidence generated, but it's very, very small, and I'm not sure how accurate it will turn out to be, that maybe that somehow 
people are wired in such a way that they can recall these better. You can compare this with, say, the phenomena of dreams. You know, why is it that we all dream, but we recall only a small proportion of them? And why is it that some people can recall more of their dreams than others? Maybe their brain is wired in such a way that they can recall their memories better. And so it may be that during cardiac arrest, more people or even everyone might have these experiences, but somehow only 10 to 15% or 20% are wired such that they can actually recall them afterwards as well. I was thinking of their religious background, their feelings of afterlife, and even how they're brought up in a particular culture. There's no evidence that there's any relationship with their uh, religious background or their culture as such. And by that, I mean that people from all different backgrounds have had these and will have these experiences, even people who are atheists. What you do find, though, is that the interpretation of the experience does, to some extent, depend on the individual. So, for example, if a Christian, say, in the U.S. and a Hindu in India both have one of these experiences and they see a light or a being of light, the Christian may describe seeing Jesus, the Hindu may describe seeing Krishna. But nevertheless, they've both seen the light. Or if a child has one of these experiences, the way they interpret it or the way they describe it is in a child's sort of terminology vocabulary. So, for example, a small child that I interviewed who was less than three when he had the experience had described seeing a bright lamp rather than a light. You know, that, that's the way that he could describe it to his parents. So the interpretation depends on the individual, but the core features seem to be similar. I know you're expanding your projects to the United States. If there are areas, hospitals, intensive care units that want to contact you to become part of the project, how should they do this? The best thing is if they could just email me or if they could actually go to one of our websites, which is horizonresearch.org, all one word, and they can just email through that website and it will come to me. It also has information on the study. I want to thank Dr. Sam Parnia, who has been with us today, and we've been discussing AWARE, which is awareness during resuscitation, these near-death experiences. It's certainly changing the way we look at dying and the whole dying process and how we may even treat our patients. As Stephen Hawking has said, quote, real science can be stranger than science fiction and much more satisfying. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickern, and you've been listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Heart Health. For a program guide, complete list of shows, and podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com.